This is 20 Pages a Week, where together you and I will read all the way through the Bible in a year. I'm Hal Hammonds, and I'm here to help. I'll supply one story that grabbed my attention, one verse I found particularly interesting, and one word that I couldn't get out of my mind. The rest is up to you. This is Quarter One, Lesson One. The reading is Genesis chapters 25 through 50. We'll start with my first impressions. In Genesis 25, verses 9 and 10, we read, Then his son Isaac, that is Abraham's son Isaac, and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, facing Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried with Sarah his wife. Very similar descriptions of this piece of land are given again in chapter 49 and chapter 50. Almost legalistic terminology. It seems like the patriarchs were determined to lay out the one very specific exception to the rule. For a quarter of a millennium, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their families wandered in the land of Canaan as essentially homeless people. They had no land at all. There was one exception, and Abraham paid for that exception very specifically. The only other passage where there is any kind of possession referred to is in chapter 48, verse 22, where it says that there was land there in the land of Canaan that Jacob had taken with his bow. And it seems like what Jacob is saying there is following up on the sin of the Amorite mentioned in chapter 15, verse 16. Jacob had taken the land from the Amorite, the text says, but the text nowhere indicates that Jacob even took up a bow, let alone fought the Amorites with it. It seems what Jacob is saying there prophetically is that his nation has already taken possession of this land. They didn't own it yet, they just owned the one piece. But it was all theirs in the mind of God, and that means it was all theirs in the mind of Jacob. That should give us encouragement as we wander through the wilderness ourselves, as we live as sojourners on planet Earth, looking for a real inheritance to claim for ourselves. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saw this as symbolic of their lifestyle in general, looking for the city that has foundations. As the Hebrew writer tells us, Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16, that's our life too. We may get a little piece of it, and we may call it our own, but this is only a foretaste of what God is going to give us after this life is over. Well, almost our entire reading is the Jacob story, and Jacob is one of my very favorite characters in all of the Bible, so we'll have to tell a Jacob story here, and I decided to go with the obvious one. In chapter 25 of Genesis, starting verse number 27, we see that Jacob made a bargain with his brother Esau, his twin brother. Esau was famished with hunger after coming back from a hunt, and Jacob sells a meal to him, a bowl of red lentil stew, and for that, Jacob gets Esau's birthright. A birthright that we hasten to add here should have been Jacob's. Jacob was entitled to it because of the prophecy that God gave to Rebekah while she was still pregnant with the boys. It was understood, or should have been, that Jacob would be the head of the family. Isaac seems on the path to thwart God's plan for whatever reason. And so Jacob reaches out for what should belong to him anyway. That's not to rationalize or justify any of Jacob's behavior, as we see in the next few chapters. But we're focusing here just on the the mess of pottage, as it were. And I want to talk about it from Esau's perspective more than Jacob's, actually, because this is a formative moment in the life of Esau. In this moment, Esau shows us what kind of a person he truly is. He is defined by this mistake. The book of Genesis is generally just a storybook. It just tells what happened here and what happened there. Very seldom does the author or editor stop to pass judgment on something that somebody does, but he does it here. In verse number 
34, as Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way, the text says, thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's not miss the main point of this text here. This story happens because Esau didn't care about important things. He didn't care about spiritual things. And this mistake on his part is going to define him for the rest of his life in a literal sense. Backing up to verse number 30, the text says he wanted to swallow that red stuff, and therefore his name was called Edom. Edom is derived from the word for red. It's kind of interesting because Esau was born with a body full of red hair, it seems like, reading the text literally. We could understand why he might develop the nickname red, why he might already have it after several decades. But that's not where he gets the name, at least not according to Genesis 25. He gets the nickname from this event here. He chose the bowl of red, and because of that, he's red for his entire life. He is Edom, and the nation coming from him is called the Edomites. This story does not give Esau a particular character, nor does it give a particular character to his nation. But it does define the character, reveals the character. It shows who he truly is. And the nation that comes from him, Malachi refers to, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. This is what we're talking about. Esau represents a class of people, not just a literal nation, but a class of people in general that has no regard for spiritual things. And Jacob stands apart from that. Jacob is the one that is approved of God. And if that makes God seem arbitrary or judgmental or whimsical in his choices, let me emphasize in the first place that Jacob was no perfect individual himself, nor was his nation. The entire Old Testament testifies to the, let's be kind and put it, lackluster performance of the people of God over the centuries. And also, it's probably worth noting that the Edomites were not especially wicked by world standards. They are pretty much like everybody else, a nation that does not regard the things of God and therefore drifts into iniquity and rebellion and ultimately is punished by God. It's not just the story of Esau's descendants. It's the story of those who reject the things of God. This is not about what you were born to do. This is about what you choose to do. And if you choose sides with Jacob, then you set yourself up for success. If you choose sides with Esau, you set yourself up for failure. We as the people of God have a birthright too. We have a gift given to us, the free gift of God, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6 verse 23 tells us. What a tremendous blessing that is. And those of us who have chosen Jacob's side, who have seized this, who have put ourselves in the path of grace, are in a tremendous position. Let's not squander that. Let's not sell our birthright for a mess of pottage. Let's not show God that his grace is wasted on us. He's counting on us to be better than that. We're going to go a little bit obvious again here in this segment. Genesis 50 and verse 20 Joseph tells his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. He's talking there about, of course, in the first place, them selling him into slavery and then him being in position because he was sold into slavery to save the brothers in this time of famine, to bring them to the land of Goshen and protect them and allow the nation to grow in this foreign environment and eventually provide an opportunity for the nation to reenter the land of Canaan many years after Joseph's death. This idea of the providence of God and everything working together for good, to paraphrase from Romans 8 verse 28, this is seen oftentimes by people as a way of rationalizing bad decisions, rationalizing sin even. Well, 
I shouldn't have done that. But, you know, look what happened. Look how it worked out. It worked out for good. Everything's okay. It's a sin to sell your brother into slavery. It's a sin to threaten to kill your brother. It's a sin to lie to your dad about whether your brother is still alive or not. Those are bad things, and nothing that happens as a result of those bad things makes them any less bad. We need to emphasize that. We also need to back away from the idea that every particular event in our life has some kind of specific purpose. There is a difficulty, a hardship, a setback, and we immediately go to the mind of God. Well, God must have a plan here. God must have a a reason for all of this. It's a way of us making sense out of pain and suffering. If God loves us, surely he wouldn't allow us to go through these difficult times. There must be some kind of light at the end of the tunnel. And there is after a fashion. In the grander scheme of things, James chapter 1 talks about this, the first few verses, that we, when we fall into manifold trials, it works patience in us, and patience has its perfect work, that we may be complete, lacking nothing. In a general sense, the difficulties, the hardships, the unfairness of this life brings us to a better place. It hones our character. It encourages us to lean on the Lord more. It helps us become the kind of people that God wants us to be. Now, sometimes it's more specific than that. But because we are on this side of eternity, because we are looking at the present tense instead of the big picture, it's impossible for us to say with any kind of certainty that God has a specific plan for us. We need to focus on the general idea that God will work these things out for us. In chapter 41, verse 51, Joseph names his first son Manasseh and says, God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. Joseph is moving on. He's not worried about what all of this is going to lead to. He's content to live in the hand of God and accept whatever kind of eventuality may come. We need to have that kind of contentment too, not assuming that everything's going to work out in a particular way for a particular purpose, but rather that we are tools in the hand of God and we are eager to serve in whatever capacity we find ourselves in. I'm going to bend the rules a little bit with regard to the one word. I'm going to use two words, your father. In chapter 31 and verse number 29, as Laban has chased down Jacob, trying to take back his children after Jacob left in the middle of the night, essentially, he phrases things a little bit oddly. He says, it is in my power to do harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. I found that odd. Laban acknowledges the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, at least in a casual sense. They are cousins after all. But there's a profound difference between knowing who God is and acknowledging that God exists and actually serving the one true God. Laban acknowledged God in chapter 30, verse 30. Abimelech, one of the Canaanites, knows the name of God, which is odd. He calls him Yahweh in chapter 26 and verse 28. How he came to that knowledge or exactly what relationship he had with the God of heaven, we don't know for sure. But it certainly does not seem to be a personal relationship, what we would call a true faith. The contrast to that is in Genesis 28, verse 21, where at Bethel, Jacob acknowledges the God who has opened up the heavens and shown him this glorious scene, this ladder with angels ascending and descending. He says, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. That assertion of faith, that confidence, is what we ought to be looking for. It's not enough to simply have the faith of our Father. The time comes for us to leave our Father's house and find our own faith. I don't know how old you are at that time. Hopefully you're not 73, 
like Jacob was. But however young or however old you are, don't be satisfied with your God, their God, the Bible's God. Make him your God and make him your God today. Thanks for listening to 20 Pages a Week. Please don't hesitate to reach out with your stories about your trip through the Bible this year. I'd love to hear from you. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with your friends. And check out my other podcast, The Citizen of Heaven. I'll see you next week. We'll be reading Exodus. God bless and keep reading.